This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you. Really appreciate you uh, hanging out with me today, as always. An honor, a pleasure, and a privilege to have you here in the hut. I wanted to take a little time today to talk a bit about, let's talk about Obama someone that you've heard me discuss in the past. I've only got, what is it now, a little over a week before Trump is inaugurated or before the inauguration. Only got a few days left of Obama. I have to say, I feel like in a lot of ways I've come of age or maybe become a a fully functioning adult in the age of Obama. When Bush was president, I was a a 20-something Uh, 20-something CIA officer who thought he was uh, indestructible and, yeah, pretty awesome. And over the Obama years, I've made a complete career transition. And not that that really matters to our discussion right now, but I'm just saying it feels like two very different parts of my life. Uh, The Bush years, I was CIA. The Obama years, I was more or less. uh, I was uh, media um, and now from CIA to, for a time, CNN and the blaze. And now I look at, at what's happened over the last eight years, and I have to say it's been quite a ride for all of us now. I'm talking about what's happened in this country while Obama has been president. We had eight years of an Obama presidency that, I have to say, with the exception of bin Laden's we can say, I mean, should we, is assassination the wrong word? I guess the more proper term would be a targeted killing, but we all know that bin Laden wasn't wanted dead or alive, right? He was, he was going to be donezo at the end of that whole thing, I think. I do not think that there was going to be any circumstance where, hey, look, he could have had a suicide vest on. They don't know. But uh, other than Osama bin Laden, uh, that raid, I can't think of a time when I was... When I, when I felt like there was a an Obama who was a president of goodwill and good faith for all Americans and, and really was able to sort of rise above the partisan tide. I can't think of a time in eight years where President Obama showed himself to be really magnanimous. It's interesting because Obama came into office with greater support uh, and headwinds at his, well, I guess, no. What do you call it when the wind is at your back? Well, let's say the wind at his back. Headwinds would be the wrong kind of wind. As you can tell, I don't know much about sailing, and I'm going to come clean with you all right now. 
I don't much like sailing either. Don't really like don't really like being on boats. For a guy who wears boat shoes all the time, kind of weird. But I wear boat shoes mostly because I have wide. Okay, tell TMI, as my little sister would say, TMI. Uh, back to Obama. He had a tremendous amount of support. That's not even really stating it properly. He had more than a tremendous amount of support. He had the love of the media. Um, do we have a clip of uh, a decade of media drooling over Barack Obama? Do we have that? Can we play some of it? Please do. You can see it in the crowds. The thrill, the hope. How they surged toward him. You are looking at an American political phenomenon. You know, you are the, the equivalent of a rock star in yeah. politics. Right. Many people afterwards, they weren't sure how to pronounce your name, but they were moved by you. People were crying. You tapped into something. You touched people. I have to tell you, you know, it's, it's part of reporting this case, uh, of this election. The feeling most people get when they hear a Barack Obama speech, my, I felt this thrill going up my leg. I mean, well, I don't have that too often. Steady. The no, thing. seriously. It's a Even Keith Olbermann's like, whoa, he steady. He speaks about America in a way that has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with the feeling we have about our country. And, I, and, and that is an objective assessment. On the bus ride along the snowy road to Lebanon, Brian Williams. I showed him this week's Newsweek hot off the press. That's it? All right. Hat tip newsbusters for that montage. We need a montage. If you haven't seen Team America, I feel weird recommending that movie to you just because I think that uh, for some of you, if you see the uncut version, it's a little much. But it's I love it. I think it's a very clever, fun movie. And I'm not somebody who particularly likes animated or stop motion, whatever they call that, stop motion films. But Team America is is an icon of American culture in many ways. But they needed a montage for Obama here to show us that the media was just completely in love with him in a way that was really unbecoming. But it makes sense when you break it down. Love of Obama is a was a and still will be a career enhancer if you work in journalism. I've never really heard a satisfactory answer as to how uh, the left has been able to so thoroughly take over, not just to be a majority but to dominate almost to the point of exclusion in the areas of uh, academics well, I should say tenured professors at fancy universities and in media and in Hollywood I know that it's a lot of it's based on self-selection and so the people that are there because they're leftists have an emotionalized view of their own importance and the things they support it's not about policy differences. It's about are you a good person? And so they, they're, they feel so self-righteous that they feel a righteousness in ostracizing other people. I get all that. But you'd think that there could be a little, considering the country's roughly 50-50 split, you'd think that we could do a little, uh, have a little more room in some of these areas. And in journalism, journalism is fascinating to me in this regard because a lot of journalists on it don't even think that they're biased. I had an uh, an argument once with a friend, and I had a few of them that I would actually consider to be friends, uh, at CNN, and she was flabbergasted at the notion that I thought that a vast majority of CNN's reporting uh, not was was really partisan reporting dressed up as something else, that it tilts left, and that all of the hosts are left, 
without exception, to, to varying degrees, but they're all left of center. They're all Democrats, and they're obvious in that they're all Democrats, and that anybody who's not a Democrat could pick up on this. And this was a person that I, I knew and, and had a good relationship with, and she just looked at me like I was from some other universe, like, like I had somehow entered into the Virgo supercluster, Google that one, uh, from far, far, far away. This was some craziness. But the journalists absolutely love Obama. They always have loved Obama and his failures and the, I, I think, really petty and an often vindictive streak that he had as president uh, was something that was just never given any real attention, never given any real reporting. It was career enhancing to love Obama. And now we look back and he's giving a speech. I think it's tonight at nine and uh, nine Eastern in Chicago. Maybe I'll stay up and live tweet it. Get ready for the snark. Oh, buck slap, buck slap, buck slap. I got to bring back the buck slap. I, I've been thinking about this, by the way, and I know I say things sometimes and I don't necessarily institute it right away. I've I got, got a lot on my mind and a lot, a lot of stuff going on, so I can't always get to uh, you know the history podcast. But I think bringing back buck slap should be pretty easy. I also had a thought that it would be kind of fun to start doing a if this movie were real life segment, right? And so we can just talk about how if a movie were real life, this is what would have happened in it instead of what we were shown. I think that could be pretty amusing sometimes. I was thinking about the movie Chef, which I watched with uh, Miss Molly on the way back up from Florida. It's a really cute, nice movie, but it's so so unrealistic. They might as well have, it's just about a guy running a food truck who leaves his business after he's got a tyrannical boss as a he's a chef and he leaves the owner behind and all this stuff fits falls into place and it's so cutesy at the end I'm like this is so ridiculous this is not how it happens this is sending a really bad message to people you know quit your job and all of a sudden you'll within a couple of days you'll fix your family your life will be better you'll have a new job it's like no quit your job and you're not gonna have health care for a while and you're gonna be running up credit card bills and you're gonna be stressed as heck uh, in many cases, not in all cases, but in many, but I digress. I also think Mrs. Doubtfire, which people have done parodies of online would be a fantastic, if this movie were real, you could do a whole thing about how he doesn't get joint custody at the end. He gets locked up and probably never gets to see his children again. Uh, this is the Robin Williams movie where he dresses up as an elderly, as a, as a geriatric, uh, English woman. I'm sure you've all seen that movie. It's a great movie, but it's completely ridiculous, right? You could do this with other ones too. All right. Back to Obama. So think, let me know what you think about that one. If this movie were real, I think that would be kind of a I know I love action movie quote Friday uh, and I only limit it to Fridays because I, I want it. To, I want it to be special. But if this movie were real is another segment that we could start doing, maybe uh, you just call and be like, you know, Buck, if this movie were real, we could just go from there. Um, so Barack Obama made a lot of promises. He made a lot of promises that he clearly was not going to be able to fulfill. Right. That. This is the moment that the rise of the seas and all that stuff, that we began to heal the planet. I heard this stuff and thought to myself, how could anybody be taken in by this? But people were, including those who think of themselves as intellectually elite, as astute observers of the political scene, journalists all over the place. Uh, Obama was supposed to be a transformative figure by his own words. He was going to fundamentally transform the United States. I don't think he fundamentally transformed it, but I do think that it's quite di it feels quite different in many ways now than it did before. First of all, the promise 
of the first African-American president as a great racial healer uh, has been largely, uh, I think that's been a promise that's largely been dashed on the rocks of reality or crashed onto the rocks. It, it is not what has happened with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and other incidents that received a tremendous amount of national attention across the country, including the Trayvon Martin case, which is still, he is still considered a, a martyr of the movement. And the Democratic Party has, these, has women who, uh, mothers and other family members, who will show up at political events for the martyrs of the movement even in the case of, say, Trayvon Martin or Mike Brown, where you had somebody who was uh, acting as a hooligan and attacked somebody and was shot for it. But they're still martyrs of the movement because it's just uh, the visceral imagery that was, in some cases, fabricated. Right. Trayvon Martin, if you believed the way the media was covering it, was a, a an adorable, smiling 12 year old. When in reality, he was like a hundred and eighty pound, 18 year old who was fond of taking, uh, you know, sort of selfies and photos of himself where he, he could look a bit like somebody you wouldn't want to tangle with in a fight. Uh, but the racial healing aspect of this administration didn't occur. It, it is a milestone that President Obama is the first black president. That certainly is to be celebrated and, and is historic. And that's just those are just statements of fact. But that was established really on day one. Then when you look at the day one of his presidency, when you look at the duration and what what really happened, I, I know it's almost a sort of right wing reaction um, to say and you, you sort of get a reactionary right wing impulse all the time that everything Obama does is bad. It even became a joke back in the days when I would do red eye. Uh, we'd say, thanks, Obama. You know, we'd be talking about how, I don't know, they they banned ice cream socials at some school because the you know the the kids were partying too hard or something I don't, and we thanks obama right we everything was it became a joke because everything was about obama but when you really do look at the major issues that he was dealing with or that he addressed uh, he was a hyper partisan i don't really think that's a contestable statement people would contest it but i don't think they could do so in good faith the passage of Obamacare without a single Republican vote was one of the most brazen acts of hyperpartisanship. Well, certainly the most brazen that, that I can think of from a legislative perspective in my lifetime. Uh, the constant undermining and haranguing and browbeating of Republicans, not because they may have been wrong on some issues, but because they were unfeeling, unthinking, bad people, that somehow under the Obama presidency, every disagreement in politics was turned into a referendum of the character of those on each side. And of course, his side was always good. And the constant creation of straw men, you know, some people say, oh, you know, we should just let everyone die. I say there should be health care. You know, that sort of thing it happened all the time. He was constantly constantly creating false arguments and then demolishing them, which, as any of you know who have been in an argument with anyone, is among the most annoying tactics you can come across. When someone creates a false argument, won't address your argument on the merits or in any capacity, and they create a false argument, and then they want to talk about how much they have annihilated the argument you're not making, that's really a description of how Obama went about his eight years in office. 
There's also something really condescending and embarrassing about the way that not just the media, but much of the world treated President Obama. They didn't necessarily think of it that way. But to give a man a Nobel Peace Prize before he has done anything as president and to do it because he's the first black president, right, to do it because of the historic nature of the electoral victory, but not based on anything done in office, there's something uh, a bit too much there. There's something obvious and over the top. It's, oh, well, by praising Obama, we're showing how great we are. This was one of the main characteristics of Obama's presidency uh, all throughout, that praise of Obama became a form of virtue signaling in and of itself. That if you were supportive of Obama, you were a good person. You were supporting the first black president. You weren't a racist. You were one of the good people. You were one of the worthwhile, thoughtful emotionally in touch intelligent people because you were supporting the first black president this had a corrosive effect on many of the discussions that would happen throughout obama's presidency because of course then uh, the opposite also had to be considered true by many if you didn't support obama it was something i mean bill maher very very much made this argument in the open all the time any opposition to obama was rooted in racism at some level great or small among the most intellectually lazy positions that one could take, but an effective one because of the power that accusations, no matter how off the wall, no matter how unwarranted, accusations of racism have so much power to destroy. One of the things I'm hoping from a Trump presidency is that that will end. I want to talk more about the specifics of the Obama years, mostly because, guys, you know, we can exhale on this one. It's over. The Obama presidency is basically over. I find that you really have to actively celebrate what is good in your day-to-day life. You have to take moments to appreciate every little thing. You know, I, I, Every time you have a really good breakfast, every time you have a really good night's sleep, you should actually take a moment and go, wow, that was great. Because otherwise you get into a negative mindset. You go into a negative spiral. Because there's always going to be aspirations that are unfulfilled, always challenges that you haven't overcome. There'll always be dreams that feel like they are getting more distant or perhaps you think maybe even some have ended. You've got to appreciate the day-to-day, the small things. I think that's also true in news and in politics. Yeah, we've got Trump, we've got problems, we've got all this other stuff, but you know what, let's take a moment here, a few moments together, we come back, say, all right, the Obama years are over. That's a good thing. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Sponsor this half-hour team is SilencerShop.com. SilencerShop is 
the place to go for a silencer, which is a must-have accessory for your firearm. It makes shooting more enjoyable by reducing the blast to a much more comfortable level. Look, I'm going to tell you the truth. I hate noise. Excessive noise drives me nuts. I also hate whistling, but that's a specific thing that I think some people have. I hate I hate loud noise, which living in New York City means that I'm constantly trying to just go, you are a hollow reed. Stress just passes through you. Uh if you're out shooting, there's no reason for you to ever come home and have ringing in your ears. I know with EarPro, you know, some of you are fine with it, but first of all, EarPro, really good EarPro tends to be a little, little heavy, at least on my head. Reduce the, reduce the sound, reduce the recoil. Silencer is the way you want to go for that reason. And the best place to go to get your silencer is silencershop.com. They'll help you with the whole buying experience. They've got a fantastic selection, great prices, great service. Check it out, silencershop.com, silencershop.com. Help make the world, help make your world a quieter place. Um, speaking of silencers, oh, you're going to like this one. This is going to be a transition where you're like, oh, word, like, yes, correct. I've got it ready. Here we go. Um, hold on. I just lost the piece, though. This is going to happen to me sometimes. I get all excited, and then I realize that I have to actually find what I was going to talk to you about. But our friend Sean Davis over at The Federalist has a fantastic piece on silencers that I just wanted to bring to your attention for a minute. People think that silencers are like they are in the movies. Uh, Sean's piece here in The Federalist is progressives don't understand how gun silencers work. Here are some facts to help them. Uh, he goes into the actual decibel levels of silencers uh, on different weapons, for example, on, on an AR-15. Uh, unsuppressed, it is approximately 165 decibels. A jet engine from 100 feet away is approximately 140 decibels. And then he says the uh, that OSHA bans employees from exposing employees to 115 decibels for more than 15 minutes. So he, physical pain and potential permanent damage be begins at 140. Eardrums rupture at 150 decibels. If you fire an AR without a suppressor, the overpressure generated by the gunshot will blow out your eardrums as well as those of anyone in the nearby vicinity. He goes on. It's a great piece here. Uh, what, what I think is interesting is that any of you who I fired suppressed, I fired ARs, MP5s, all manner of handguns from the 22, uh, nine millimeter. I think, yeah, I fired 45 suppressed back in the agency days. Uh, I think that one I actually have to think about. All the rest though are for sure. But people think it's like it is in movie movies where it's pew 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 pew. You know, you run right pew 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 pew. That's not what a silencer sounds like because there's an effort underway right now to make it less difficult to buy silencers because people realize that what if you can own a gun why can't you own a silencer it sounds like someone's taking a baseball bat and cracking it nearby the bug sexton show on the blaze radio network Show. So I since I, since I talk a lot about silencers here because one of our wonderful sponsors in the show is Silencer Shop, and we have a great piece from Sean Davis. And I should uh, I'll tweet at Sean just to give him a shout out. We should have uh, I should have had him on today. I didn't uh, think about this before him, but I, I read his piece last night, and we, Sean knows we love him. Um, uh, and uh, but his piece is great because he goes into the whole silencer thing. And I have to say, it is there is a little bit of disappointment. The first time that, speaking of silencers, you, you, can you hear the emergency vehicles, the fire truck, whatever, outside my house? I swear, 
New York City, when they can come up with earmuffs that are sort of, you know, you can like press a button and they go on and you press a button and they go off and they don't feel weird in your ears. I think I'm just going to walk around with them all the time. I've actually, some of my best rock concert experiences have been, I, I put little foamies in. I, I don't know if you have to call them little foamies, but that's what I think they can be called. Now, and then you can actually enjoy the music and not, and not walk. There's nothing fun about walking out of a concert and being, what? Who? That was great. That's not cool. I, I do not enjoy that. I don't like being at restaurant. I don't like being at, at weddings because that's happened to me too. Where you're sitting there, and the band is, you know, wake up in a cold sweat, and you're like, it's so loud. I'm gonna wake up in a cold sweat because the band is right next to my table. That's too loud. At a restaurant where you have to yell, um, I'm also very protective of my voice because this is how I communicate with all of you. So I, I don't want to lose my voice. Uh, where was I on this though? I digress, or do I, or do I? Um, oh yeah, silencers. But yeah, you watch movies, and it's always pew, 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 pew. It's like, it's like they're firing a little laser gun. If you fire a twenty two caliber handgun with a silencer on it, it is kind of a pew-pew situation. I just like making that little sound effect, by the way. Uh, I, I'm enjoying my onomatopoeias right now. What's up? Uh, but if you fire a rifle, if you fire a uh, AR, for example, with a silencer, it makes, it makes a, a bang. It's just not a bang that hurts and possibly permanently damages your hearing you, you, it's not like you could walk up behind somebody on a street and fire a silenced ar and nobody would know that that something that a loud noise had just occurred so um that's another and, and then you can get into sort of the uh, buck be careful with your sort of uh you can get into how making an actual illegal suppressor if you're a bad guy is not hard at all so you're really just hyper controlling access to a firearm accessory that primarily in 99.9 percent of situations would just be used to allow people to shoot more comfortably and enjoy shooting more and also if they have you know if you have to use a firearm in the defense of your home for example you probably uh you don't necessarily at least want to have your ears ringing and that could be disorienting so that's my little. That's my spiel, if you will, about silencers. And uh, for more on this, uh, silencershop.com. I'm sorry, <laughs> sponsor thefederalist.com. See, I just, I just got confused there for a second. Uh, they're, they're tr this is all coming up now because there is the. I think what they're calling it the Hearing Protection Act or something. There's a bill in D.C. Uh, that might actually get passed that would make it easier to buy a silencer, um, which would be great. Great for those who like shooting, great for our sponsor. Uh, so yay, all around. Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist, is the author of that piece on thefederalist.com. We can post it online, and you can share your thoughts there. But yeah, I just wanted to be clear. Again, if it were real life in movies, when they fire a silencer, a silenced AR or even a silenced MP5, it would be whap, 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 whap. It's loud. It's not pew, pew, pew. It's whap, 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 whap. Like someone's taking a stick and, and hitting the side of a, you know, a car or something with it. Loud, but not break your hearing loud. Uh, I was going to talk about Obama's presidency. Instead, I started talking about silencers. That can happen um, uh, just because of the stories that get muddled in one's head. Um, so I'm mixing up the rundown today. Uh, let me get back to the presidency and assessing it. 888 900 
888-900-3393. We'll be back right after the break. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Team, welcome back. So I uh, some closing thoughts on the close of the Obama administration. Uh, it's not, not been successful from the perspective of the promises made at the beginning, but I think we all knew that was the case. If you're a progressive leftist who wanted to see a much larger state, who wanted to see the apparatus of government grow, its powers grow, and to see a, a hardening of the identity politics that is really the beating heart and soul of the Democratic Party now. Uh, the Democratic Party tells people, you are this, therefore you must believe that, and you must not trust them, them being uh, Republicans and primarily white male Republicans. You cannot trust them. Uh, even though there are white males in the Democratic Party, they're Democrats, so they get a pass. They're the good people, right? But the white male Republicans can't trust them. They're bad. Uh, identity politics has a really destructive effect on everything, our day-to-day lives, the way we uh, are both told to interact with each other in the workplace and forced to because of government mandates, because of special protections and policies put in place now that benefit some. Remember, there's no such thing as a special... Uh, protection that is not also a privilege, right? So people are getting benefits that others don't get based upon their identity. And and this is a, a function of government action. This isn't just a function of perception in society. This is really dangerous, bad stuff. But whether we're talking about affirmative action or any number of other uh, government instituted social engineering programs, it has gotten worse, I think, under the Obama administration because they pushed this stuff so aggressively, and there was a spokesperson for these policies, and President Obama, spokesman, who for for whom there was sort of this invul no sort of buck. There was this invulnerability. Uh, there was this invulnerability of not being able to really be criticized because if you criticize him, you're racist, especially on policies that involve race. So that's coming to an end. I think that was a very uh, stultifying is that a word like made stopped it hobbled it uh, that was a, a very negative uh, feature of the Obama administration the conversations on race were I think much more closed and rancorous than they had been before President Obama was in office and it's a shame it shouldn't have been that way and it didn't have to be that way on foreign policy I've talked about that so much that there's Really not a whole lot of wrap up that needs to be done here. Obama wanted an America that was less involved in the world. This is all based upon a foundational fallacy that if only America was not doing so much in some places, there would be this indigenous, organic, uh, localized response to things in the rest of the world. Right? Local control everywhere. You know, the notion of, of federalism in America, local control versus federal control. Democrats kind of hate that, although they're starting to like it now that Trump is president. But in the rest of the world, people in charge of their own affairs is always a better thing. And they'll be in charge of their own affairs if America does less. Not true. 
This makes it more problematic. Not true. China, Russia, Iran, any number of other countries take the opportunity to more deeply invest themselves in the affairs of other countries when America is not standing there, especially in the case of allied nations. Uh, it is really a scandal, and it is a betrayal what has happened in Ukraine. We promised to defend them if they gave up nukes. We promised in writing the Budapest Memorandum. You can check it out yourself online and read the whole thing. You'll see it. It was us, the U.K., and, of course, Russia. Ukraine's been carved up by the Russians. You could say we've done sanctions, but we could have done more. Do I think we should go to war with Russia over Ukraine? No. But could we have helped the Ukrainians a lot and said, sorry, what were the Russians going to do? Were they going to go to war with us? You know, it's always you can always take this position of, well, if we get more aggressive, then the other side is going to go to the mat. You should think about that, though. Will they really? So if we take the Obama administration's policies and just play them out around the world, we can never really punch the bully in the nose because then the bully's really going to come after us. This is not a good way to run a foreign policy. This is not wise. This is not something that should be emulated by this administration or by any future administration. So, I mean, the incoming administration, I mean, with the Trump, the Trump team as it's all coming together. Uh, you also have Obama speaking in Chicago, which is interesting because Chicago has a, a murder rate that is just, just dis disgraceful. I don't know what else. I don't know how else to describe it. Horrific. You have young children being shot. You have this gang warfare on the south and west sides of Chicago that the police there can't seem to get a handle on, and the the uh, citizen or the the residents of Chicago don't seem to be, have any real hope that it's getting better anytime soon. This is Obama's chosen hometown. Not really, remember his hometown's really Honolulu, which I always think is so interesting. We think of him as Obama from Chicago, but he's really Obama from Honolulu. Obama, who went to private school in Hawaii, yeah. But, oh, yeah, he's a south side of Chicago guy, sure. Uh, that this doesn't bother people more. Look, Bush did it, but Bush is not a Texan, really. Bush is a Connecticut Brahmin who went to Yale and Harvard Business School without having to exert himself too much. You know, you, you look at these individuals, never mind the Clintons, who had no connection to New York until after the presidency. So this keeps happening, and I'm like, why is this... Why is this not something that irks people a little bit more? You know, Obama, Obama, the Chicago politician. Yeah, he learned politics in Chicago, but he's not a Chicagoan in the sense that that's his hometown. Really? Well, but I guess Honolulu is kind of far away. Honolulu is great. Every time I start getting too fed up with New York or with working in media or with any of the above, I'm like, maybe I'll just move to Hawaii. I don't know what I'd do there, but I'd find a way to do something. And I'd be within striking distance of the beach and just eat a lot of mangoes and hang out in a bathing suit all the time. I feel like this is maybe maybe this is the secret sauce that I need in life. But we'll discuss this another time. I'll set up the Freedom Hut from Honolulu. Although it wouldn't, I don't know, I wouldn't do Honolulu. I would pick some other place in Hawaii. That's I just need good Wi-Fi. Uh, oh wait, I, I gotta I gotta get this in. This was amazing. This has nothing to do with anything I was really just talking about. But, but but this is amazing. Like, one of my favorite things I've read in a long time. I have We have Action Movie Quote Friday, and I love it. Uh, it's, it's just fun for me because I get to, every time you call and you throw out the quote, I get to think of my favorite action movies, and it often turns into a, a discourse of sorts on that. Um, oh, 
And also, I'm doing Facebook Live at 3 o'clock today because some of you have requested it, and I have been uh, not doing enough Facebook Live. I, I admit it, and I agree. So we're going to do some Facebook Live at 3 Eastern today. So if you're listening, uh, just go on the Blazes Facebook page or on uh, my Facebook page, facebook.com slash buck-sexton. Or buck, no, buck-sexton, not buck-sexton, just buck-sexton. Okay, I found this out yesterday, and it was amazing. I got so excited, and it brings me back to being like a 13, 14-year-old, hanging out at my parents' apartment here in New York with my two brothers. And we watched Bloodsport, uh, which is Jean-Claude Van Damme's best movie. And I don't think there's really a debate to be had on that, but we watched Bloodsport so many times that we can do whole scenes, and we've done it sometimes. We'll just sit down and work. Somebody will throw out a Bloodsport quote, and then the rest of us will just be other characters from Bloodsport. We can just do the movie. We, we can have a sort of three-man show, the three brothers. Uh, and if you don't know what the three, if you want to see the three brothers, by the way, you go on Instagram where I posted the photo. Uh, if you follow me, Buck Saxon on Instagram, you'll see fun photos. My two very, my two very handsome brothers. I, I, I aspire, uh, I aspire to have the uh, suave, uh, stylish demeanor of my two brothers. But Bloodsport, this is amazing. This is from. The New Yorker in 1997, a guy writing a piece on Donald Trump. Here's how it goes. The solid gold fixtures and hardware, sinks, seatbelt clasp, door hinges, screws, well-stocked bar and larder, queen-size bed and bidet, easily outfitted with a leather cushion cover in case of certain turbulence, implied hedonistic possibilities. The plane, this is about Trump's plane back in 97. The plane often ferried high rollers to Atlantic City, but I witnessed only good, clean fun. We hadn't been airborne long when Trump declined or decided to watch a movie. He'd brought along Michael, a recent release, but 20 minutes after popping it into the VCR, he got bored and switched to an old favorite, a Jean-Claude Van Damme slugfest called Bloodsport, which he pronounced an incredible, fantastic movie. By assigning to his son the task of fast-forwarding through all the plot exposition, Trump's goal being to get this two-hour movie down to 45 minutes, he eliminated any lulls between the nose-hammering, kidney-tenderizing, and shin-whacking when a beefy bad guy who was about to squish a normal-sized guy uh, received a crippling blow to the scrotum. I laughed. Admit it, you're laughing, Trump shouted. You want to write that Donald Trump was loving this ridiculous Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, but are you willing to put in there that you were loving it too? I'm willing to put in there that I love Bloodsport. And I have to tell you, if I had known that Trump celebrated Bloodsport in this way and was such a fan of what is really just a ripoff of the true martial arts classic Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee, side note, but if I had known that he loved Bloodsport, I would have been like, America, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. He loves Bloodsport, which is Jean-Claude Van Damme's best movie, which is also, by the way, we could do the If It Were Real. It is a ridiculous movie, but it's amazing at the same time. So fun to watch. Um, probably on Netflix or something. You can check it out if you want to. Uh, and the fight scenes are kind of ridiculous. You know what? Endless high kicks from what I've seen on the street myself. Not a good idea, team. Not good. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is Three, two, one. The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you as always. Appreciate you joining. Appreciate your time today. That's how we like it here in the hut. We are joined now by our friend Matt Continetti. He's the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. You can read his latest on freebeacon.com and on Twitter at Continetti. Mr. Continetti, great to have you. Uh, so let's talk a bit about the Jeff Sessions situation. I managed to see some of the hearing this morning. I always get frustrated when the hecklers or whatever we call them, the, the shouty, protesty people, I can't tell what they're saying because I know it's going to be both belligerent and stupid. I couldn't hear it. Uh, but there's been some of that, and there's a little bit of a dust-up because I think a member of the media said something vile about how Sessions had an Asian grandchild on his lap or something like that. What's going on with the Sessions confirmation so far? Well, from what I can tell, the Sessions confirmation hearing is going remarkably well for Jeff Sessions. Uh, he's been able to answer all of the questions um, and uh, issues uh, thrown at him by the Democrats on the committee. Um, interruptions by the Code Pink crowd are nothing new on Capitol Hill. Um, and unfortunately, they've, the Capitol Police has never really figured out a way to prevent them from getting into the hearings. But once they start uh, interrupting the hearings, they're quickly removed. And, yeah, there's some sniping on Twitter um, by the usual gang of idiots. But overall, I think uh, Jeff Sessions is having a good first day of, of confirmation hearings. Now, there's, there's been a lot of talk about how they're going to go after him on issues of race. What is the contention that the left has here, and how do you think it will be met both by Jeff Sessions and just Republicans who are clearly going to defend him in these hearings if things get nasty? Well, the, uh, the, the major attacks on Sessions uh, go back to uh, comments he is said to have made decades ago uh, about the races. Um, these are denied by him. Uh, there's ample evidence that that it's hearsay um, and not to be taken seriously. There's, of course, you know, any accusation of racism on Sessions, he can easily rebut, I think. Um, he's done a lot of work for the black community in Alabama uh, in his career in politics and as a senator. Uh, there's a photo of him with John Lewis, who is about to testify against him, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, celebrating the civil rights movement. And indeed, Cory Booker, who in, in an unprecedented move is going to testify against him. I don't, I'm not sure what he's going to say, uh, but uh, Cory Booker has praised him in the past. So um, I think that I think this argument is pretty weak, uh, and it, it's doubtful that it will affect his confirmation. You know, Sessions has a great advantage, which is he's a senator, and um, when you're in the have been in the Senate for as long as he has, uh, some two decades, uh, he has relationships with both Republicans and Democrats, and so uh, I expect him to him to be confirmed. The stuff that they're saying, though, uh, or that the, the left has been putting out there, that he has, is sympathetic to groups such as the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, this is really, you know, is is it because now anything is acceptable to throw at Trump, no matter how untrue or how unfair, that now seems to extend with much of the media to anybody who would work for Trump? Because that's kind of the feeling that I get, although I think that with Mattis and a few others, they'll know to that they probably can't get away with quite as much. But with Sessions, a lot of the stuff that they've been putting out there is, is it's just dirty it's just the worst and it's obviously not true 
Right. Well, the, I mean, the civil rights, uh, for lack of a better word, institutions have have always been against Sessions uh, because you know he he thinks that the Voting Rights Act needs to be modernized. That the situation in the United States today is not the same as it was in 1965. He's very tough on crime. Um, so if he he's opposed to many uh, to the agenda of kind of the you know institutionalized civil rights movement in this country, which is different, by the way, from even the majority of black opinion in America. Um, on the issue of immigration, for example, I think if you polled African-American communities, you'd find that they probably line up more closely with, with Sessions than than the um, institutional like uh, civil rights organizations like the NAACP. I mean, school choice is another issue where the NAACP really just, uh, I think, disgraced itself uh, last year, when late last year, when it voted to oppose school choice, basically because it was on the bankroll of the teachers' unions. Well, there are many black families uh, around the country who who would support school choice, school choice, like like Jeff Sessions does. So, I, I think these arguments, the Democrats have to say them uh, because because the the civil rights groups are such an important part of their coalition, such as it is now. Uh, and they have to fundraise off them. That's always a great way to raise money if you're a Democrat is by accusing Republicans of racism. But I don't actually think they're going to have much effect on Sessions um, or on his confirmation. Is there anybody that you think is going to probably get successfully opposed? Any any senior official that you see real problems for of the of the named Trump nominees thus far, or do you think most will get through with with maybe some bruising to their reputations, but nothing catastrophic? Well, I mean, look, the Democrats are in the minority. So uh, and it was the Democrats who three years ago changed the rules so that appointees and judges lower than the Supreme Court level can be um, approved uh, into office by a simple majority majority vote. So the Democrats created that precedent. So it's going to be hard for them to stop. The real problem would come if something emerged from the hearing or some piece of opposition research made Republicans scared. And there I think you have to look at a few of the candidates. Um, uh, Steve Mnuchin, the candidate for Treasury, he's not, really, he's not well known in D.C. He's a Hollywood producer and investor. Um, how he'll perform I think will be important. Um, Scott Pruitt, uh, you know, he's uh, – from Oklahoma. He's a state's attorney general. He's incredibly accomplished. But, you know, if there's one core component to the Democratic coalition, it is the environmental uh, movement. And so the Democrats are going to try everything they can to to stop that. Uh, I would look at Rex Tillerson, again, for the reasons that uh, ExxonMobil is demonized among Democrats. Um, And also, You know, Tillerson has to worry a little bit about um, the Republicans on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, because of his uh, friendliness with Vladimir Putin, or at least his personal relationship with Vladimir Putin. Tillerson's one of the few Americans, I think there are only three, who actually can see Putin, uh, who's non-president level Americans who can see Putin um, rather easily. And the other two are Henry Kissinger and Steven Seagal. So I think that might come up in, in Tillerson. Well, Steven Seagal, I mean, that makes, per- that makes perfect sense, Matt. Let's not get crazy. Well, he, uh, Seagal and Putin are close friends. I know. Putin, Putin just made Seagal an honorary citizen. Of who of else? Right. I mean, Putin's got judo covered, but who's going to show him the Aikido uh, skills right. that will give him yeah. the edge the next time he's in some hand-to-hand combat? Absolutely. Yeah, so I, 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 I think I, Tillerson will get through, too. It's just um, he'll have to... 
he'll have to uh, perform pretty well. But there's a great report in the Wall Street Journal today about his negotiating style, which is apparently legendary in the business community. And from reading that report, I, I don't think Tillerson will have any problem with the, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. What? Give us a give us a one-liner. What's his negotiating style? Sometimes he'll just stare down his opponents. Mainly, uh, these are you know Russian. Uh, oligarchs and uh, former intel officials, but he's been known to stare them down in meetings until they accept his terms. He's also been known to, like, uh, strategize temper tantrums, right? So he'll get up and he'll throw a book across the room entirely on purpose in order to get the uh, uh, the guy on the other end of the table to agree to his terms. You can see why Donald Trump would like would like Rex. Wow. So Rex Tillerson doesn't negotiate with people. He stares at them until he gets the answers he needs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of like Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris, exactly. Yeah. Tell me a bit about your piece in the Free Beacon uh, on thefreebeacon.com. Send in the head clowns, the delusional Democrats as 2017. Why are they delusional, sir? Well, they think they still run Washington. It's fascinating. Um, you know, we're a few days, we're about a week in into the new reality, but isn't, that reality has not um, uh, intruded on the Democrats' brains. The Democrats have been on a roll, really, since 2005. They took the, they took the Congress in 06. They took the presidency two years after that. And even though they lost the Congress piece by piece, one 2010 the House, 2014 the Senate, they still had Obama, who was basically immune from criticism. So it's only now where you have Trump becoming the president in about 10 days, and you have unified Republican control on Capitol Hill, that the Democrats are, should be on their back heels, but they don't realize it. And you listen to Chuck Schumer saying he's going to try to keep the Antonin Scalia seat open, He's going to try to delay some of these cabinet appointments until the spring and early summer. It's delusional. Uh, he doesn't have much power. He's the minority leader. And if he really goes um, you know, head-to-head with McConnell on this first Supreme Court placement, uh, the, the Scalia seats replacement, um, it's very possible McConnell will change the filibuster rules for the Supreme Court. And then that will completely defang the Democrats for as long as they're in the minority. So if they don't play nice, Republicans can up the ante even more. And the precedent was set by Democrats in the first place of getting rid of the filibuster, right? So there's they, they right. don't really have much. Of the, if, if they try the serious obstruction game, especially with nominees, nominees to the Supreme Court now, they're going to run into a buzzsaw here. They're going to have some real problems. They very well could. And remember, they're up against somebody uh, that they don't quite understand, and that's Donald Trump. And so far, that their, their attacks on Trump are very similar to the attacks uh, that Hillary Clinton and then Trump's Republican nominees made against Trump. And that just don't phase – they don't phase Trump, and they don't seem to have any effect any, on, his, um, on his ability to maneuver or on his ability to uh, get things done. He's still pursuing his – agenda regardless of what Chuck Schumer throws at him and indeed he called you know he responds in kind by calling Schumer the head clown which is where I got the title for that column so <clears throat> until Democrats realize that they're in the minority and start getting a little bit canny about opposition I think they're in trouble remember it was Schumer and Rahm Emanuel who in 2006 helped the Democrats take over the Congress by really recruiting candidates aggressively recruiting candidates who would appeal to white suburbanites and to the white working class. Now, though, uh, their political strategy seems to be to abandon white voters altogether, and I don't think, I don't think that's a winning strategy. Let me ask you, uh, Matt, one more before we uh, let you get 
back to running things over in the Free Beacon newsroom. Uh, if you had to give this administration an epilogue, uh, the Obama administration, what would it be? I think it's Jimmy Carter for two terms. You know, I we'd always uh, the conservatives have always viewed Barack Obama as Jimmy Carter, and so that's one of the reasons so many of us thought he would only have one term in office. But the truth is, he only, he's Jimmy Carter with two terms, and he's still being repudiated. There's no other way in my mind to interpret the last uh, year's election other than an, a repudiation of Barack Obama and his agenda. And even if it, that repudiation isn't personal, I mean, you see this in the polls, Americans like Obama the person, they like Obama the father, especially. Uh, they have really looked down on his agenda since Obamacare in 2010. And as that, as that agenda became increasingly estranged from uh, public opinion, from reality even, um, they've liked it less and less. And so I think with Trump's election and with unified Republican control in Washington and with indeed with the Republican Party at its highest point since the 1920s, you, you have to see a, just a very widespread rejection of Barack Obama, just like uh, there was a rejection of Jimmy Carter in 1980. Matt Continetti is the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. He is at Continetti on Twitter. Give him a follow. And uh, Matt, Happy New Year to you, sir. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Happy New Year. 888-900-3393-TEAM. We will be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. I love this. This is great. The Associated Press fact checks the Merrill, the uh, allegation or the uh, whatever the statement by Donald Trump that Meryl Streep is overrated. Uh, Meryl Streep overrated. Donald Trump picks a decorated star. Trump's overrated, this is from the Associated Press, everybody, the AP, okay? Trump's overrated remark follows one he made in 2015 to The Hollywood Reporter in which he called Streep one of his favorite actresses and a fine person, too. While overrated is an opinion, Streep, who took aim at Trump in her speech while accepting the Globe's Lifetime Achievement Award, holds the record for the most Academy Award nominations of any actor. She has earned 19 Oscar nominations and three win, blah, 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 uh, all, all the rest of it. So, yeah, they they fact-checked Trump's Meryl Streep is overrated. So now you can't even say that without the fact-checkers uh, jumping on you and telling you that you're, you're wrong. You're wrong. I almost tweeted out last night that while Meryl Streep's speech was really annoying, The Devil Wears Prada is, like, a pretty watchable movie, and she's good in it. I know. I'm, I'm admitting things to you right now. We're in the trust tree. We're in the nest. I'm just going to tell you. Uh, if the Devil Wears Prada's on, there are a lot of, a uh, lot of meat eating, uh, red meat eating, uh, America loving, freedom spreaders out there who are like, oh, Meryl's performance in this is pretty good. <laughs> the Devil Wears Prada is kind of a watchable movie. I know you're going to be like, what? Let's go back to talking about Bloodsport. But 
I think of myself as a renaissance man. I, I like all kinds of movies. Uh, so there is that. Uh, they fact-checked uh, fact on whether Meryl Streep is, in fact, overrated. Also, switching gears here for a second, uh, there was this piece that some of you may have seen over the weekend. Um, it, well, it was really a series of tweets about this guy who thinks that the Trump, uh, the, the Trump voting plumber, he's assuming he's a Trump voting plumber, is a threat to him. Uh, I've told you before about the Trump scare, such as it, such as we've been uh, discussing it here on the show. Here we go. I, I had to find this. Think Progress senior editor is scared of his plumber. Uh, so a, a Think Progress, progressive lefty site, has this guy. He's a senior editor there, and a plumber comes and visits him uh, after the 2016 election, and he he puts the following up on. I think he put this on Twitter. Oh no, it was a Facebook post. Quote: He was a per this is this is a Think Progress editor talking about the plumber who's come to fix a, a, an issue with plumbing in his house. I don't know what it is. Quote, he was a perfectly nice guy and a consummate professional, but he was also a middle-aged white man with a southern accent who seemed unperturbed by this week's news. This is right after Trump's election win. While I had him in the apartment, I couldn't stop thinking about whether he had voted for Trump, whether he knew my last name is Jewish, and how that knowledge might change the interaction we were having inside my own home. The uncertainty of the situation left Reznikov rattled for some time. Quote, I have no reason to believe he was a Trump supporter or an anti-Semite, but in my uncertainty, I couldn't shake the sense of potential danger. I was rattled for some time after he left. Uh, and then he said how ambiguous social interactions now feel unsafe and unpredictable in a way they never did before. Even if Trump is gone in four years, I don't expect to ever reclaim that feeling of security. That's just one more thing. If you voted for him, you voted for somebody makes a living in the media writing and thinking, and this person is sharing with the world that he meets a middle-aged white man with a southern accent, and instead of perhaps uh, microaggressing but in a friendly way by asking him about his favorite barbecue or whether he enjoys hunting, which would be much more acceptable, he thinks that he must be a Trump supporter, and therefore he's a threat, and makes him feel unsafe. This is lunacy. I mean, this is therapy time. This isn't like, oh, let's all just let political bygones be bygones. People are out of their minds about this stuff. And if I can walk around the streets of New York City and assume that no one's going to pick a fight with me because of the few times I'm on CNN actually getting to represent conservative principles in a way that is real and uh, unfiltered. Well, no, it's always filtered through CNN, but then I think this guy can have a plumber who has a southern accent and is a white middle-aged man and not be quaking in his Crocs. I'm just guessing that guy wears Crocs. I don't know why. Back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Team, we are joined by a new guest, first-time guest, James Kirkchick. Uh, he or Kirchick, rather, pardon me. He is a fellow with the Foreign Policy Initiative. He has a new article out in the Washington Post called "How Trump Got His Party to Love Russia," and he's also the author of the upcoming book, "The End of Europe: Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age." James, great to have you. Thank you for having me. Uh, James, tell me how Trump got his party to love Russia. This is the piece you have on WashingtonPost.com. What's going on here? Well, I think there's two groups, basically. Um, one are the opportunists, and this being Washington, I think that's most of the Republicans that we're talking about. Um, people who basically just seem untroubled by the various connections between Trump and Russia, his statements on Russia, that are very at odds with you know decades of Republican Party policy, uh, going back to the Cold War, obviously. Um, and a lot of Republican officials just seem to kind of, you know, look askance at this, and it didn't really seem to bother them. Um, I'm thinking of people like Newt Gingrich, people who should really know better. Um, and then the other group, I'd say, is a more kind of hardened ideological um, faction, you could say, within the conservative movement that actually sees Russia as a potential ally uh, against Islamic terrorism. And they think that NATO expansion was really antagonistic and not worth it. Um, and that Russia can, you know, basically be our friend because it's no longer communist. Um, and that the reason why we ought to have opposed Russia earlier was because it was godless and, you know, opposed to the free market and all those other things that the Soviet Union uh, did. Uh, but now that the Soviet Union's gone, we should be friends with the Russians. Um, and so these are the, basically the, the two groups that I see. One's more opportunistic. One is more ideological. Um, but they basically seem to be on the ascent. Now, for those who say that Trump's rhetoric uh, doesn't trouble them because, well, his positions change and he had to get elected, maybe as he comes into office, he'll evolve on this stuff. I, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows, but we'll just put that aside for a second. What are, when people talk about the troubling Russia connections, what are the ones that have, have really been established? Other than him thinking Putin is strong and smart and, and that stuff, I mean, what are the actual... Because it seems like there's a lot that's made of how Trump is so pro-Russia because it's he has interests in Russia. What are they? Mm -hmm. Well, we know, uh, first of all, it's hard to divine uh, the extent of his interests in Russia because to this day he refuses to return to release his tax returns. And presumably if he did that, then we would be able to find out. What we do know, his son, Don Jr., said at a public investment conference once in Moscow that a great deal of the Trump organization's investments and investors are Russian. So that's on the record. Um, and then during his campaign, he had numerous advisors who were very close to the Kremlin, not the least of whom was his uh, campaign chairman for a couple of months, Paul Manafort, who um, you know, was, a, was a hired hand for the pro-Russian president of Ukraine um, for several years, uh, the one who you know, fired on his own citizens and fled to Russia. Um, so those, I would say, are the two major connections that we're aware of publicly. Um, and, that's and that's obviously in addition to his his public statements, which, as you said earlier, you know, he's on many issues, he, he's shifted back and forth over the years. And it's hard to divine really where he stands. I will say on Russia, he's been very clear for many years um, that he is basically sees that we that the U.S. should have a rapprochement with Russia. He's been fairly consistent on that. Um, what would a smart policy, uh, smart Russia policy for the administration be? Well, I think it's certainly not what we've had for the past eight years under President Barack Obama. Um, and I think re recognizing that Russia is basically 
at the least an adversary, if not an enemy, of the United States and the liberal international order. I mean, you can go through any issue um, from A to Z, and Russia is basically opposed to U.S. interests. They're basically playing spoiler. Um, we are not allies, and we don't really have much strategically in common, at least with this regime. If Russia was Democrat, I mean, Trump says, wouldn't it be great to be friends with Russia? And I agree. It would be great to be friends with Russia, with North Korea, and with Cuba as well. The reason why the United States isn't friends with those regimes is because they're ruled by dictators. Um, so until Russia has a, you know, a, a functioning democracy, then I don't really see us having a productive relationship with them. Um, so I think we need to you know, basically contain them like we did during the Cold War. We need to increase our sanctions against them for all their horrible behavior. They're you know, invading Ukraine and annexing Crimea, their continued um, subversion of uh, democracy across Europe, supporting various extremists. Um, so you know, in, increasing sanctions and just basically being clear-eyed about who the Russians are. And I feel that we haven't had that for the past eight years under Barack Obama, certainly. But I'm afraid that we're not going to get it under the incoming administration either. And to those who say that Russia is too big to ignore, obviously still a major nuclear power uh, with many thousands of, of nuclear weapons at its disposal, too big to ignore literally as a, as a landmass, right? it's an, an enormous country, yeah. and has uh, a pretty strong, even though it's, military isn't perhaps what it once was, it's been able to flex its muscles and have a strong hand in geopolitical affairs well well outside of its borders, even outside of its periphery, given what's happened in Syria recently. Uh, it, it, there must, is, there, is there some common ground to start from to try and improve relations, or do, do you think that a, a policy of... Uh, if the policy is open containment, I mean, isn't that going to ratchet up tensions? Isn't that going to make things even more difficult in places where we're already at odds with Russia? I think tensions are going to be ratcheted up regardless. And do you want them ratcheted up on our terms or, or, the, or the Russians' terms? Look, every president comes into office thinking that he can fix Russia. This happened with Obama. It happened with George W. Bush. Remember, he looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul. I mean, this is, this is de rigueur in U.S. presidential administration history. I think we need to be realistic about what we're dealing with here, and this is a regime that is committed um, to the destruction of the liberal order that the United States has built and constructed and sustained for 75 years. So, uh, no, I think we do need to, as you would say, ratchet up the tensions, um, and we need to really revert back to a kind of Reagan-esque uh, policy, and that's to, you know, we win, they lose. Um, and I, is, is, that a, is that a scaled-down Cold War 2.0? Is it fair to call it that? It's different in many ways because, I mean, look, it's much more sophisticated what the Russians are doing. Back in the Cold War, we knew who the enemy was. They were communists, and they were supporting communists around the world and revolution around the world. You could pretty easily identify where people stood. Now you have everyone from you know, Marine Le Pen in France on the far right to the Syriza party in Greece, which is on the far left, and they are all basically sympathetic to Russia. So it's a much more complicated picture that we're dealing with. And it's also not a purely military one. I mean, back during the Cold War, you know, we had 500,000 troops in Europe, and we were concerned about a potential Soviet, you know, military takeover of the European continent. That's why we were so invested in European security. It's not going to happen. We're not, we're, not, we're not expecting, you know, Russian tanks to roll their way through Germany on the, on the way to France now. They have other sophisticated tools. It's the disinformation, as we've seen, which was so effective, I think, in the U.S. presidential election. It's corruption, it's bribery, it's buying uh, former European officials like Gerhard Schroeder or Berlusconi in Italy 
Um, they're they're very crafty at this, and it's it's just a completely different battlefield than it was thirty years ago during during the Cold War. And what does Putin's blueprint look like? Let's assume that the worst fears are true. Um, uh, the worst fears are true that Trump is going to be far too friendly and open towards Russia, pliant even when dealing with Russia. Uh, if Putin gets his way, I assume that this ties also into your book, The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age, which we'll have you back on to talk about when it's when it's out in March. But without giving away the plot already or giving away too much of the book, yeah. what does Putin's world look like? I think it's a world where, where might makes right and basically where bullies get to you know get away with whatever they want. And it's a return to spheres of interests. Um, and so, you know, Putin would basically say to Trump, look, you guys can have the Americas. You can have Latin America. That's traditionally been the American sphere of interest. Do what you want. Let me deal with Eastern Central Europe, um, South Asia and my part of the world. Uh, and I think that's wrong for several reasons, not least of which is that, as you mentioned earlier, Russia is the biggest country, the biggest landmass on Earth. So it, it pretty much gets to have whatever sphere of interest it says it wants. It it, its periphery is really big. <laughs> it's a really big country. So they can pretty much dictate to us what they want. And I think it's wrong morally. I don't think I think countries should I mean, they should have the right to choose their own security and political arrangements. And if Ukraine someday in the distant future uh, qualifies to be a member of the European Union and NATO, and NATO and the EU want to let them in, I don't see why we should bow down to Moscow and say that that can't happen. Um, I don't think we should. It's basically appeasement. Um, and so I think, you know, we've, we've sacrificed so much blood and treasure um, over the past 75 years, making the world more safe for democracy, for freedom, for free markets. Um, and I think it would be a shame to see that crack and to see us in retreat on that. And I think that's that's basically the world that we may be entering now. Do you see major disagreements, given that Trump has got uh, General Mattis and will have him in place at the Pentagon? And there are some other figures in the administration who there's at least reason to believe have a different view or a, a different proclivity towards Russia than Donald Trump does. Do, do you think this is going to be a major point of dissent early on in the administration? I'm not so sure about the administration. I think you're right about Jim Mattis. There was an article last week in the Washington Post already about there being some tension between him and the White House in terms of hiring uh, people. He wanted to hire some of the never-Trump national security Republicans who had opposed you know, Trump in the primaries and in the election. Um, but if you're looking at the way the rest of the administration is shaping out, um, it seems to be that it is, it is tilting in a more pro-Russian direction, certainly with the appointment of Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. You know, this is a former head of a CEO of ExxonMobil. Um, and look, when your job is the CEO of ExxonMobil, it's to make deals, and especially to make deals in Russia. That's why he had such a great personal relationship with Vladimir Putin. And I'm not really sure that the skill set that one acquires when you're the CEO of an international oil company is really the same skill set that you should have when you're Secretary of State, when there are other competing interests, for instance, values and human rights in the interests of American allies in Central and Eastern Europe. These are not things that really factor into your mind when you're striking you know, oil and gas deals with Vladimir Putin. Um, so I, I would expect to see the most resistance coming from Congress. Uh, you're already seeing it from John McCain and Lindsey Graham, the more hawkish members of the Senate. Um, and this is why, again, I'm, I'm so d d disappointed in the Republican Party. I mean, which has traditionally been the more hawkish, certainly when it comes to Russia, party. 
um, for decades. And to see them just basically collapse so easily because they're the nominal Republican, Donald Trump, who's the president, has this bizarre romance with a hostile foreign power, I think is really a shame. James Kerchick is a fellow with the Foreign Policy Initiative. He's got a book coming out in March, The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. We'll have him back on when that hits the shelves. James, really appreciate you joining us today. Great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. You know, the, the French recently passed a law, the, the right to disconnect. It's very important for them. They can, uh, how do you say, by the way, I love that Matt Welch said that French people aren't French enough for Hollywood. So they have to get Americans that do ridiculous French accents. Totally believe it. Uh, I also know this when, when you hear some of the Australian accents out there, like, you know, Outback Steakhouse, like, you know, that's not how Aussies sound. I can't do the Outback Steakhouse voice, but that guy's clearly an American doing an Aussie accent. At least I'm guessing he is. Uh, but the French have the right to disconnect. They have the right to... Some of my French starts to turn into Transylvanian sometimes. I need to get these things clear in my head. I need the music in the back of like, da, 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 da. You know, the French and the harpsichord and on the street. Marveilleux, parfait. All that stuff. So the French are saying that after a certain time, as a labor law, more or less, they don't have to respond to emails. They don't have to be responsive. Okay. Kind of like this. I remember when I was at the NYPD Intelligence Division, I had a BlackBerry, an unclassified but secure BlackBerry. Uh, or not, I shouldn't say, it was, you know, secure in a private sector way. And they would uh, tell us, because sometimes they'd want us on very short notice, mostly because there were there was a lot of micromanaging, <clears throat> a lot of micromanaging going on in that particular unit. Um, really bad. It was when I it, it's when I understood the morale crushing nature of having bosses or a boss who is just constantly poking you on the shoulder. What are you doing? Where are you going? What are you doing? How's that coming? Where's it going? Uh, I was getting lumbered left and right, but even even more annoying than lumberg in some ways. But they told us that we had to have uh, our Blackberries with us, our work Blackberries with us, and on while we were sleeping. So if they had to call us, which granted really only happened a couple times, but if we were asleep, they could call us and we had to get up. And we'd say, well, what about worth the gym? They're like, keep your Blackberry. What do you mean? Just keep it on you. Or if you're running on a treadmill, just put it on the treadmill. I'm like, okay, what about the shower? And they're like, fine, you have a 15-minute window where you can be in the shower. We expect a call back right away. And if you're in the shower more than once when we call, we're going to you know, have questions. And it just felt very, ugh, the electronic leash. Well, now the leash, in a sense, has been extended, although there's a convenience side of this that will be nice. New York City subways all have cell phone and Wi-Fi service as of now or a couple of days ago. Some, in some ways, this will be great because now I don't have to worry about getting stuck in the subway when I have a TV hit and not being able to even call them and say, this has almost happened to me a few times uh, at CNN, never at Fox because I always leave plenty of time to get to Fox. Uh, but 
now there's no escape, and now you're going to deal with loud subway talkers or loud cell phone talkers on the subway. I guess they're also loud subway talkers. So there is no escape. I mean, once they really work out waterproof phones, and that's a thing, it's going to people are going to be having them in the shower with them, and I don't mean that in a dirty way. I just mean in a con- in a contact way. Uh, there's no escape, and I'm not sure that's a good thing. Uh, I'm starting to worry. Maybe we should all start going out into the woods and throwing our phones away for a couple of days at a time. Third hour coming up. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Work with the sound turned all the way up so your coworkers are offended and, and you get fired. Uh, whatever you want to do. All episodes are free and available anytime. This is the Blaze Radio Network. Truth lives here. This is the Blaze Radio News, sponsored by ReliefFactor.com. If you suffer from chronic pain, try all-natural Relief Factor. Go to ReliefFactor.com for natural pain relief without any nasty side effects. I'm Robin Walensky. They'll all pass. I think every nomination will be. They are at the absolute highest level. I think they're going to do very well. A confident Donald Trump telling reporters in the hallway at Trump Tower in New York City he believes all of his nominees will be confirmed. They're going great. Confirmation's going great. I think they'll all pass. And it will be a huge day on Capitol Hill as the confirmation process gets underway. First up, Alabama Senator Republican Jeff Sessions, Trump's pick for Attorney General. It's really the role he's been playing during the transition, and he's just a great guy, super smart and successful, uh, but someone that uh, is a really a great team player. Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, married to Ivanka Trump, will take on the role of senior White House advisor to the president. White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus weighing in. He's just a great guy, super smart and successful. A terrible tragedy to tell you about in Orlando, where a female police officer killed by a man at a Walmart. He's accused of killing his girlfriend. Someone in the store recognized him and ran out and got the female officer. Then an Orange County Sheriff's deputy searching for the cop killer gets into an accident and dies. Additional details now from Tom Roberts. Authorities are identifying a sheriff's deputy who was killed during a manhunt for a man accused of murdering an Orlando police officer. Orange County Sheriff's Deputy Norman Lewis died when his motorcycle was hit by a vehicle as he was helping to search for Markeith Lloyd. Meanwhile, Orlando Police Chief John Mina says an apartment complex was at the center in the hunt for the suspected killer of Master Sergeant Deborah Clayton. Master Sergeant Clayton was approached by someone who advised her that there was a murder suspect close by the Walmart. She attempted to make contact and was shot and killed by Markeith Lloyd. This is news on the Blaze Radio Network. Truth lives here. This is Jonathan Dunn, host of the Freedom's Disciple podcast, where I weekly testify to America's greatness. Join me as I speak out for God, the Constitution, your founding principles, and your history. Go to theblaze.com radio, where you'll find links to my show, available on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can listen anytime with a friend, at home making dinner, or even traveling to work. All episodes. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. 
All right, Team Buck, welcome to Hour 3 here in the Freedom Hut. Great to have you with me, as always. We're joined now by Lauren Southern. She is a right-wing activist, a writer and host for The Rebel Media. She is also the author of a new book, Barbarians, How Baby Boomers, Immigrants, and Islam Screwed My Generation. She is a Canadian. She is with us now. Lauren, great to have you. Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. Tell me about the book. Tell you about the book. Well, uh, for those of you who don't know who are watching, I am a millennial. I'm 21, and I wrote this book for my generation and also kind of as a screw you to the neocons who screwed our conservative movement. Uh, It's all about kind of the dispossession and total and utter disconnect young people have from Western culture and the type of conservatism that built up Western nations and how we've kind of been sold this false, more uh, kind of pandered to the left version of conservatism. And it just goes through list by list who screwed my generation. And it is certainly not a victim book. I include millennials. We definitely threw napalm on that fire. Uh, But it's basically there is a guide for young people on what happened and how we can fix it. And in Canada, do you think it's worse than it is here in America, about the same? I mean, the the progressive uh, lefty takeover of universities and the media that's been occurring for a long time. But I think here, at least under the Obama administration, it reached a, well, it certainly reached new heights, but it also seemed to be accelerating, right? Things were moving even faster to the left than they had in previous years. What's the situation up north like? Well, we don't really have a conservative party in Canada. Our conservatives would probably be considered Democrats in America. And also there's a lot less urgency in Canada when it comes to combating uh, leftism and radical leftism because we aren't bordered on kind of a third world nation. We don't have hordes of immigrants coming over the Mexican border. We don't have the refugee crisis at the same extent that Europe does. So we don't really see the problems as extreme as they do in Europe and in America. So the lefty takeover is certainly more successful in Canada because of that. And tell me a bit about how baby boomers, who are they're one of the uh, they're one of the groups in the title of your book that uh, gets gets it rough. So uh, what's going on with baby boomers? Why why do they deserve to be singled out and called out in this way? Well, it certainly wasn't all baby boomers. But of course, of course. But as a group, you're mentioning them. Yes, as a group, I, I am a bit hyperbolic. But yes, the the kind of free love movement, the idea of they, they got very mad with their more traditional parents that were strict, and they never really experienced the, the war and the fighting for their freedom. So they kind of rejected it all. And you got also a lot of the crazy philosophers uh, from the May 68ers, the French, like Foucault, and all of these deconstructionists that came around. And what happened was they all fought for leftist free speech. You had a lot of the campus protesters fighting for leftist free speech, for leftist movements, and then they all got in power, and suddenly they turned it right around and started suppressing the right. So it was all these leftist baby boomers and tenored hippies from the 70s that became professors today and totally turned the narrative around and are no longer supporting free speech, are no longer supporting free ideas or libertarian ideas at all. They they won their movement. They defeated their, quote-unquote, oppressors of traditional stuffy conservatives, and then they turned it right around and it became the fascists. Immigrants, also named in the title of your book. Now, ca- ca- the Canadian system, I always point out, I don't know it well, but I've, I've read a bit about it, 
uh, it runs on a point system, right? I mean, you do take in a lot of asylum seekers, but if you're going to immigrate to Canada, they actually look at things like your educational background, and they seem to have, in some ways, or at least in, in some parts of it, a more sane immigration policy than we do here in the United States. So immigrants factor into your analysis in your book, how? Absolutely. And this is an important one. And I'm not necessarily just talking about Canada. I mean, we're a bit better than America and a lot of European countries. We're not quite an Australian point system, but it's definitely a bit better. But I'm talking about the West in general. And when it comes to millennials, we are forced to pay into social systems that have become so generous with strangers. They are now unsustainable for ourselves and they are going to be unsustainable. And in Canada, even where we have it better, if you look at Fraser Institute studies, it still shows immigrants are a net negative to the country. And we should not be bringing in the amount of immigrants we are right now if they are not a financial benefit to Canada. And you got to remember, Canada, America, both still in a ton of debt. We're not <laughs> walking on sunshine here. We have our own issues to deal with. And to pretend that it's okay to, for example, in Canada, we, we brought in Syrian refugees and we were housing them in hotels for a while and in one of these hotels you had a mother with three kids that could hardly afford to live there a canadian mother with three kids that was kicked out to make room for syrian refugees no we should not be putting other countries and immigrants certainly not economic immigrants before current canadians and millennials who are going to have to pay the debts of supporting them what do you think about donald trump's rhetoric and at least his stated plans on on immigration as a libertarian, you're a libertarian, right? You're a part of the Libertarian Party of Canada, so I just want to say, go ahead. I'm I'm definitely a lot more right wing than most libertarians, and I'm definitely a lot more libertarian than most conservatives. I'm somewhere in the middle there, but I am a fan of Donald Trump simply because, well, you cannot have a welfare state and open borders at the same time. It's ludicrous. You can't uh, just allow people to walk over the borders and then suck money out of your nation and vote themselves more money. It doesn't work. It's Quite frankly, it, it's not consistent. It doesn't make any sense at all. So Donald Trump made a lot. Uh, it, it just sounded like common sense to me, and it was shocking to me how offended mainstream conservatives were by what seemed like something that should, should have been so normal to conservatives just 50 years ago. And then, of course, Islam, a topic near and dear to my heart as somebody who's worked for the CIA and specialized in the Middle East. Islam factors into your book in what ways, Lauren? Now, this isn't as big a problem in Canada, but in Europe, certainly it is changing the fabric of the nation. And I was just in Molenbeek over the summer walking through there, and I'd say about three-quarters of the women were covered up, faces covered. And this wasn't just women from the Middle East. This was European women as well. You spoke to the people there. I interviewed them, and they told me, all in Molenbeek, we want Sharia law. The majority of people here want Sharia law. Islam is different, and Islamic immigrants are different than other immigrants because their ideology is political as well, and they want to shift the politics of the countries they move into. And I see that happening here in Toronto, where I live in Canada as well, where you have uh, Islamic leaders looking for more and more control in the government, trying to get uh, more Islamic law implemented and if you allow enough immigration to happen certainly in europe and some of these small towns eventually you will see the laws and the culture start to change and it's with the birth rates if you look at the birth rates of muslim immigrants compared to native europeans and you look at the immigration rates it's not so ridiculous to say in the next hundred years that you could certainly have a muslim government i don't think that is insane to say
And you would agree with Trump's uh, limitations or not uh, limitations on Muslim majority countries and immigration to any Western country, as you say. You're, I, I understand now the thesis of your book is just about the West in general, right? So not not Canada, the U.S. or Europe specifically, all of them together. Should they all be more concerned about immigration from countries, not just that have higher rates of terrorism and, and obviously that are the wellsprings of jihad, but also perhaps have difficulty assimilating into Western culture? Is Do you, do you think that's a real concern? Should the Trump administration move on that and, and others as well? The West is such a unique and beautiful experiment that it has been no one no one wants to move out of the West. Everyone wants to move into the West. No one. It's something that needs to be preserved. The freedoms we've created, the egalitarianism created, the culture that's been created, one of flourishing ideas of flourishing culture and, and freedom, most importantly, needs to be preserved. And freedom is not free. And the only way we can do that is to make sure that immigrants assimilate. Happy to have them. But you got to assimilate to the culture. And if you accept too many from countries that refuse to assimilate, create enclaves, or even worse, are directly opposed to assimilation and want to change the fabric of the nation, because there's three kind of immigrants. You've got the ones that love and want to move into the country and become a part of the culture, the second ones that are kind of impartial and third that want to change it. And the third tend to come from a certain religious sect, and they tend to come from certain countries. And yes, we should absolutely be watching out both countries in that religious sect. And to name it, it is Islam. And uh, if I can ask you, Lauren, uh, the, the rebel, tell me about the rebel media. Right. So the rebel media is kind of the last bastion of right-wing commentary in Canada. We don't really have much right-wing media. We've got a giant super predator, CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, which is funded by our tax dollars. That is uh, almost exclusively left-wing opinions, then the rest of the media is quite leaning left. And um, so we are, <laughs> we are the, we were called the Fox News Canada when we were a news station, Sun News. That unfortunately collapsed because, well, a lot of people here don't like us. And then we started up online and it's been a booming success. In fact, I think we are the only uh, company that is not government funded that is moving up in media in Canada. So people are thirsty for different views and they are thirsty for questioning the mainstream narrative in Canada certainly as well I think I think we are going to eventually have our own kind of populist movement adjust my leg a bit behind Europe and America is my old buddy Faith Goldie still working with you guys Faith is still here yeah she just came on full-time recently she's uh she's great she uh was telling me she was stoked for me to be on your show (laughs) Great. Yeah, yeah. She, she, we had her on uh, Real News back in the day. We were running a lot of TV shows here out of New York. So, all right, the Rebel, very cool. One more for you before we let you go. And, again, I'm speaking to Lauren Southern, who is at Lauren underscore Southern uh, on Twitter. Uh, the truth about Ariana Grande and objectification. This is a piece on the Rebel.media. What is the truth about Ariana Grande and objectification, Lauren? All right. Well, something real special happened last week. Ariana Grande was told by a fan or her, she was sitting with her boyfriend and a fan walked up to them and congratulated her boyfriend for hitting that, for having sex with her. And Ariana went on a just crazy rant on Twitter talking about how this was awful. This was objectification. How can men act like that? She felt so disrespected. And normally I'd be cheering Ariana on like, you go girl, don't let that man disrespect you. No problem. But the thing you got to know about Ariana Grande, huge star, 4 million followers, all this, her top song 
is called Side to Side, and it is about her getting effed so hard she can't walk after. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes. Settle down. That is, sorry. You could just say it is about graphic content. (laughs) Graphic content. And she's running around complaining, complaining about guys sexualizing her when this is how she makes the majority of her money. And she is kind of creating this double standard for young girls where she's telling them you can be, you can sexualize yourself as much as you want. You can talk about being sexualized as much as you want. And men can never say anything to you or treat you differently because of that. When in the real world, that is just not true. Men uh, have a, this is a psychological thing. When women walk in bikinis and whatnot, their mind switches into seeing that as a tool. It's a psychological thing that cannot be changed. And young girls are being sold false double uh, they've, they've been told a false narrative by people like Ariana, and I think she's very hypocritical for how she acted in this situation. So that's what that video was about. <laughs> Lauren's <laughs> book content there, Buck. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's yeah, uh, sure. Lauren's book is Barbarians: How Baby Boomers, Immigrants, and Islam uh, Screwed My Generation. It's on Amazon.com. Lauren Southern, thank you for stopping by. We appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Team, uh, 888-900-3393 on the phone lines. We will be right back. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. So we've all heard a lot, way too much actually, about the Meryl Streep speech. I'm not going to talk about that again now. I realized yesterday that I was, in a sense, part of the problem because I talked about it a bit. I don't think that we should be in a place where that woman is able to uh, say stuff that we would expect. That's what we'd expect anyone in Hollywood in her position to say, and it dominates the news cycle. And I'm going to stop. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Uh, but there was another speech given by uh, another Canadian, like our friend Lauren Southern, who just joined, Ryan Gosling. Some of the ladies, I'm sure, are Ryan Gosling fans. Some of the guys, too. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, agnostic. Uh, but he won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in La La Land. And when he was up there, he gave a thank you. I think it, was, it seemed like a heartfelt, nice thank you to his wife, uh, Eva, Eva Mendez. Um, so he said, uh, cause she stayed home while he was making this movie and he said that she was holding the fort, looking after things so we could have one of the best experiences I've ever had on a film. And he said, if she hadn't taken on all that, so I could have this experience, uh, someone else would be up here other than me today. Sweetheart. Thank you. Said the actor. So this guy's up there. Ava Mendes, by the way, has had quite a career of her own and is famous. So this isn't even a for what we're about to get into. It's it's kind of amazing that this became a thing that the left pounced on. Uh, this is in the UK news, uh, you know, the UK paper by Narjus Zatat. Never heard of her before. Whatever. Uh, they get annoyed at him because he said she wasn't just making his dinner. Uh, no, she was, quote, raising our daughter, pregnant with our second, and trying to help her brother fight his battle with cancer. Uh, this is what this author writes. Despite the swooning on social media for his notebook-esque outpour- outpouring, I can't help but feel that Ava Mendez, an award-winning actor in her own right, 
took one for the team and provided the emotional labor needed for Gosling to further his own career. Gosling's appreciation for his partner may be genuine, but it plays into structural inequality women face in the workplace, least of all Hollywood. Wait, least of all Hollywood? I think she would mean most of all Hollywood, right? What? Okay, anyway. Yes, Mendez has agency and the decision to put her career on the back burner for the sake of her husband's. But why did she have to make that decision to begin with? And then it just goes into Hollywood is sexist, Hollywood is sexist, Hollywood is sexist. Now, if you want to make the case as a writer who apparently has nothing better to do and wants to spend her time on such a thing, if you want to make the case that Hollywood is sexist, by all means, go for it. But I don't think that we have to sacrifice on that progressive altar a man's ability to say nice things about his wife. This is when, once again, the desire to be uh, edgy and progressive and to be one of the, I don't know, one of the, the cool and thoughtful people in media, they just devolve into incoherence. They're just trying too hard. A guy saying that he, a guy thanking his wife for, taking care of, I think, she, her, her brother with cancer, a baby at home, and another baby, and a woman who has quite a career of her own, that's not really an opportunity. That shouldn't be seen as an opening for a lecture to the world on the inequalities of Hollywood. And the more that we see people who have one platform or another who just want to take a sledgehammer and whack at the load-bearing walls of Western civilization just to sort of see what happens, just to get a rise out of people, just to test out the structural integrity of the building that is Western civilization. Let's just let's just kick at those load bearing walls, take some sledgehammers, maybe a jackhammer. Uh, People are going to start to, I hope, see this for what it is. It is uh, mindless acts as a provocateur. It's just trying to one-up other people who are also taking this position that traditional gen- the traditional gender roles and the traditional family are some form of uh, slavery or inequality. and This is the sort of nonsense that you would expect only here on a campus, although after decades on campus, it's now infected the rest of society and the world. A guy should be able to say nice things about his wife, and we should all say, that's nice. And we should also probably say thanks, Ryan Gosling, for not giving us a lecture on politics, for just talking about your craft and somebody who helped you and keeping it keeping it real, I guess you could say. Although I don't, I don't think he spoke on politics. I don't know. He might have. I didn't see the whole speech. Uh, but I'm assuming he didn't. That assumption could be wrong. Uh, phone lines are open. Also, keep in mind, Facebook Live at 3 o'clock. Uh, we've got a post up on Facebook now. If you want to write in some questions, I'll hit those, and then we'll take questions live. It's going to be so much fun, everybody. We're going to get to hang out in the Freedom Hut. All 150 square feet of it. It's a little bigger than that, but not much. Back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
So we're joined now by Larry Schweikert. He's the best-selling author and retired history professor at the University of Dayton. He has a brand new book out, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents, Part 1, From Washington to Taft. Larry, great to have you. Hey, Buck. Good to be there. All right. The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents. Give me some of the, give me some of the broad strokes, then we'll dig down into some specifics here of uh, various presidential figures but what was the the uh, the the idea behind this book is to tell us what stuff we weren't supposed to know about various potosi well that uh, also i gave every president as did my predecessor who wrote volume two by the way volume two's been out for about a year <laughs> and they wrote volume two first i think because obama was leaving office and they wanted to get get him uh, a grade before he left office but anyway, one of the things that's involved in the book is giving every president a constitutional grade. How did they perform their duties based on uh, the mandates of the Constitution, the limitations of the Constitution? And so I think you'll find some surprises there with, with people that kind of generally go unnoticed but did a fantastic job, such as James Monroe, versus some of the more flamboyant people that tend to get a lot of the press, uh, such as Andy Jackson. Now, what was a, I know that this is in part two, but I just have to ask, especially in the waning days of his presidency, the very last days, what was the constitutional grade given to Obama? I'm pretty sure it was an F. Okay. I don't have the book handy. I thought maybe he would have slid through with a D, but I guess an F is not too surprising. I'm sure he uh, didn't get a gentleman's C. I've got the book around here someplace. It's been a while since I've read it. But, uh, yeah, I'm, it was not good. <laughs> let's talk about some of, in, in this volume, volume one, uh, Let's talk a bit about some of the the revelations about various presidents that you, you get into in some detail here. Uh, for example, George Washington used his faith as a pillar of his presidency. Do tell. Yeah, Washington is often wrongly portrayed as a deist. He was not a deist. He was a, a Christian. He was a vestryman at his church, which is kind of like a Bible study leader. He prayed in the name of Jesus. Which, which, you know, any one of those things pretty much puts him down as a, a dyed-in-the-wool mainstream Christian uh, conservative. And um, he, he very much, in all of his major speeches, included uh, God and, and, and God's role in human activities and so forth. So he's quite aware of, of uh, the necessity of America uh, being on good terms with the Lord. And Thomas Jefferson may have been for small government, but he might not have said an iconic quote attributed to him. Which one is that? That's uh, the government that governs best governs least. And presumably the very best government is no government at all. No, that's uh, Jefferson is an interesting and, and um, uh, kind of two-sided character. Uh, he very much believes in states' rights. He writes the Virginia-Kentucky Resolution. Uh, you know, against the Alien and Sedition Acts. Um, but in his presidency, he does a number of very uh, unsmall government-like things. First of all, you know, he acquires Louisiana, which I'm sure we all applaud. I mean, I, I like going to the Superdome for a game now and then. But uh, he does so without ever consulting Congress or the Senate, which should have been the body to take this up. And, and let me just, before I continue, Jefferson, let me segue to one important thing, which is almost all these early presidents were believers in the Whig system of government, W-H-I-G, which meant that they all believed that, that action should originate with the legislature, the House, and the Senate, 
and the president should be more or less kind of caretakers and, and add the final stamp of approval. And, of course, right off the bat, Washington finds that he can't do that because of the pending threat of war with France and Britain. So he right away changes that. But but anyway, Jefferson would have said he believed in the Whig structure of government, and you know, one of the first things he does is to acquire Louisiana pretty much by himself. You know, Livingston says, hey, Napoleon will give it to us for, you know, $15 million, you know, maybe throwing a basketball player to be named later or something, and and Jefferson says, buy it, take it. Talking to Larry Schweikert, he's the best-selling author of numerous books, including his latest, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents, Part 1, From Washington to Taft. Tell me a bit about Andrew Jackson's uh, animosity towards Native Americans, more than just racism, your book says. Yeah, Andrew Jackson, there's no doubt he was a racist. And there's certainly no doubt many, if not most, of the people around the world at that time had similar views of different people. Uh, Jackson's particular situation with the Cherokee came from his his youth and the Cherokee's support for the American Revolution, uh, for the British and the American Revolution. Uh, they chose sides and they chose against the Patriots. And Jackson never forgot it. Uh, he thought they were traitors for doing so. And so when he got a chance to get even, boy, he did. He got even. And Theodore Roosevelt, a progressive but also a diehard patriot. Well, and what do you think about Teddy, Buck? I mean, you pretty hard on Teddy? Well, I know that it became kind of fashionable in recent years for conservatives to talk about how he's the original progressive and right. therefore is in some ways the, the author of all big government ills that have come since then. But, I don't know, Rough Riders, he did some cool stuff, an interesting man, a renaissance man. I kind of like the guy. Yeah, he's he's exactly that. He he has some bad views, especially on economics, and and I think where that comes from is precisely what you said. He's a Renaissance man. He does almost everything. You know, he writes newspaper articles. He writes books. He he creates a cavalry regiment when he could have sat in a safe desk back home. He's the only president to win the Medal of Honor and the Nobel Peace Prize. And yet his one big shortcoming is he never really runs a business. He never owns a business, and he never has an appreciation for, for turning a profit, paying employees, that kind of thing. And I think that very much shapes his, his attitudes toward business, especially big business, when he becomes president. But, you know, I think you or I would be very happy to be in a foxhole with Teddy Roosevelt, and I think you or I would never question his love of America. There, it wouldn't even cross our minds. This guy loves America. A couple other things you get into in the book. Uh, I just wanted to give people a, a taste of what they, they can expect if they buy the politically incorrect guide to the presidents. Uh, George Washington wanted America to be isolationist? Well, that's kind of a, a mantra that's been used more recently by a lot of libertarians. He writes a line in there. Actually, Hamilton writes it for him in two different places. Where, where he says we must avoid these entangling alliances, and I think Jefferson picks up the exact term, entangling alliances. But the fact is he qualifies it with a 20-year period. you got to remember when he's writing this, 1796, uh, 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 he's about to step down. Uh, John Adams is about to take over, and Washington is warning the country, you know, we're a chihuahua in a yard full of German shepherds. 
we can't afford to go out and pick a fight and, and be allied with one group or another that will inevitably cause us to lose. We've got to be careful. And so he says, for a period of 20 years, and he uses that phrase for a period of 20 years a couple of times. And I think it's telling because what do you have 20 years later is the War of 1812. And what do you have in the War of 1812? American regulars are able to go toe-to-toe, as they say in the movie The Patriot. Remember this line? Gates is a damn fool. He's going toe-to-toe with redcoats in open field. It's madness, you know. Well, the fact is that's exactly what the American army did in the War of 1812 and won several victories doing that. Now, New Orleans is different, but uh, Chippewa, Lundy's Lane, I mean, America's duke it out, Americans duke it out with the best army in the world in open field in regular European military tactics. And Washington foresaw that we were not going to be able to do that for a long time. We need to build up our economy, build up our military forces, and then we'd be able to tell the rest of the world to buzz off if, if we didn't like what they were doing with us. Worst president in U.S. history, all in. Who is it? All, all in has to be Obama. I mean, without question. Wow! Obama right, right away. Trump, not even, not Trump even stopping. It. Worse than Woodrow Wilson. Worse than. <laughs> worse than Wilson. Worse than Carter. Worse than Millard Fillmore. Millard Fillmore really wasn't that bad, but he, he gets all the jokes from Johnny Carter. Wow. I, I, I thought at least there'd be kind of a, a moment's hesitation. You think Obama's the worst president we have? He's worse than Andrew Jackson. question. And, and I go back to what I started with about these guys loving America. There's no question in my mind every one of the ones up to task loved America. And, and I have serious reservations many times about whether or not Obama loves this country. I don't think he even likes this country quite, quite often. Top three presidents all time for you, Larry. Oh, easy. Who? This is too. It's too easy. This is Washington, Lincoln, Reagan. I think you got to go five to really have some kind of really. All right, we'll give you. Uh-huh. We'll give you five. We're in a generous mood today, right. in the Freedom Hunt. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Coolidge, Calvin Coolidge would be number four. Amherst College Lee. alumni, Calvin Coolidge. I'll have everybody know. Yeah. Go ahead, sir. Our only president. Go. We okay. get very excited about that. Well, he was a great one. You know, born on the fourth of July. How do you beat that? And, and then Grover Cleveland uh, is number five. Although I call him the last good Democrat. Uh, oh, you're going to have okay. Wait, hold, can I ask you? Explain now, the rest of them. This audience would would be able to, I think, re- recite chapter and verse uh, why that they, they they could stand stand next to you and make that case. Grover Cleveland, tell us why he's great. Cleveland is a great president. He's first of all, he's the only president to ever win an election lose an election, and then come back and win another election. And uh, he is faced with – he's one of the first gov- presidents, maybe the only president, actually, actually try to shrink government. His main issue are these veterans' benefits stemming from the Civil War. And by the time he gets into office, which is 1884, the first time around, these things have grown to be the Social Security of the day, and he has to fix it. And he even goes through these veterans' claims one by one, finding out, now, this guy, he was wounded after the war. This guy never served. And he, he's kicking these out by the hundreds and, and eventually by the thousands in trying to pare down their claims against the U.S. government. So that's number one. Number two is that he has presented a seed corn bill. This is small but very, very symbolic. He's presented a seed corn bill for a minuscule amount of money 
uh, in the grand scheme of things, to send seed corn to drought-stricken Texas farmers. And Congress has passed it, and he, he sends it back. He vetoes it, and he says, I cannot find in the Constitution. Whoa. What president would use this language anymore? I cannot find in the Constitution where we are authorized to do this. I have sympathy for these people. I suggest, I love this, I suggest Congress take up a collection among yourselves that would equal the amount and send it to the farmer. Ah. I didn't know, you know, Grover, I got to, I got to, what's the, do you have a bio, people are going to ask me this, and I don't, I hate when I don't have answers for, for my team. Sure. So, uh, best biography of Grover Cleveland. Well, the Alan Nevins uh, biography of Cleveland is the best. Uh, there are a number of newer ones, uh, including one, and you'll forgive me, I've got to look on my library real quick. Sure. No, I, I. I do the same. I always book titles for me are always easier than book authors, which I feel bad. It should probably be the other way around, but yeah, I, I well, usually forget the author's name. Let me just pop the book open here and and just just look at the Cleveland entry on some of these. Uh, Brodsky, I think is the name. Alan Brodsky has a a great biography of Cleveland. Okay, where are we? Grover. All right. Well, there you can we let go. me know, and I could post it up. I could post it up on on Facebook, but. Uh, we're going to run into a hard break here, Larry, so i, I got to bounce. But I want to make sure Brodsky, everybody knows your a book. study in character. There you go, Brodsky, oh. a study in character. Fantastic. Larry Schweikert is a best-selling author. His latest is The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents, Part 1, From Washington to Taft. Also, P.S., Obama the Worst Ever. Larry Schweikert, great to have you, sir. Thank you for calling in. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Shaman, he sounded like he was sad at the end. Why was he sad? I don't know. I, I didn't think he should be sad. I feel like we had a great... Anyway, book will be great. Get Larry's book. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. Show on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, team, we've got uh, Keith up in Alaska. Keith, you're in the Freedom Hunt Shields High. What's up? Hey, Buck. Hey, um, I just wanted to say so the uh, uh, blood sport, Frank Dukes, um, that's based off a true story. And if you go on YouTube, you can actually find quite a bit of footage of him fighting at the Kumite um, in China. Wait, if you do, if you you mean the real Frank Dukes? The real Frank Dukes, yeah, the real Frank Dukes. There's actually there's quite a bit of footage of him fighting at the Kumite in China. Um, yeah, well, I think they held it in different places, but uh, um, I know some of them were held in China. I've I've seen all this back and forth, as I understand it, in the martial arts world as to whether Frank Dukes is uh, overstating his exploits or not. And I, I don't know which side I come down on because I only know the Van Damme side of things, which is the movie, which is obviously yeah, fake. Well, so. I, I, I'm sure some of the stuff was embellished or whatever, but you can, um, you can go um, check out um, his fights. Um, I mean, you know, there's some, you know, there's like a whole bunch of compilations of him fighting at the Kumite and just knocking people out. I mean, just head kicking them, 
I mean, just brutally beating these dudes bad. All right. I'll uh, uh, send me a link to that. Tweet at me. I want to. I want to yeah. see what you're talking about. Um. All right. Appreciate it. Uh, right, Keith cool. up in Keith up up in Alaska Shields High. Great to talk to you. How much time do we have? I I am confused here, Shimon. Are we at the like the, the very end, or do I have like a minute here? I got through. Okay, we are at the very end. I'm gonna miss all you guys, but I'm gonna be on Facebook Live in just a few minutes, three Eastern, which is uh, gonna be coming up right here in literally a couple of minutes.